the new life basics first. We kind of have to do a little bit of a rewind and then fast forward through some of what Paul has described and discussed in the previous section to kind of understand and have a grounding and a framework for the instruction and the guidance and commands that he's giving in this passage here. If you remember, Paul is writing to the Colossians, he's addressing them, and he's establishing for them in the first part of the letter a theological foundation, a theological groundwork upon which then he's going to come and make commands and instructions for how they live out, practically speaking, their life. And so in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 and following, he's just kind of culminated all this theological truth by saying, hey, look, Colossians, here is what I'm trying to communicate to you. You are now new people. You are no longer as you formerly were. You are now a new man. You have died with Christ. You have been raised with Christ. And as a result, it is your responsibility, it is your obligation to now go forth living this new life. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4 really summarizes that idea. As, as Paul writes to the Colossians and he tells, tells them, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. Why? For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, that is, his resurrection is fully realized, then you also will appear with him in glory. And so he's written this theological truth. He's told them, hey, listen, this is who you are. You are no longer who you were. You're a new man. And so in verses 5 through 7, what does he do? He goes and he tells them, these are the things that should not characterize your life any longer. Fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desires, covetousness, which is idolatry. But instead, or he continues on, sorry, uh, he goes on in verse 8. Put off anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie. And then he comes and he tells us in verse 12 and following, this is what's supposed to characterize your life. This is what you're supposed to be pursuing after. This is what your ambition, your hope is to look like. As the elect of God, who are holy and beloved, you put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all, put on love, which is the bond of perfection, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which you also are called in body and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord, and whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And so this is the foundation, this is the framework that Paul has laid says you are new people. Why? Not because of anything that you've done in your own strength, your own ability. Rather, you've realized you are a sinner. Your sin alienates you. It separates you from the 
kingdom of God, and you've come and you've willingly submitted your life to Christ and told him, I am a sinner, I deserve the wrath of God. But because of God's great, rich mercy, he has allowed me to place my faith in him and receive his righteousness. And now you're a new man. You've died with Christ, you've been buried with Christ, and you've been raised with Christ. You're a new man. And, and so now he's moving on and he's going to say, okay, what does this practically look like in life? And he's going to start with the basics. He's told them, live as a new man. Put off all these old things, put on these new things. And where does he start? It shouldn't shock us that he starts with the most basic building block relationships that most of us have. At least one, some of us two, others of us have three of these relationships within our lives. And he says, this is where you're going to start seeing this at first. And if, if you're not seeing it flow as it should within these basic relationships, then you need to definitely hunker down and make sure that these relationships, which are the primary basic place where we begin to see these, begin to flourish, and as it begins to flourish, what's going to be evident? Your new life will be evident. And so the theme, I believe, of Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 through chapter 4, verse 1 is this. In all our relationships, we live to please the Lord. In all our relationships, we live to please the Lord. If you would take your Bibles and let's read together Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 through 4, 1. Wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting for the Lord. Husbands, love your wives, and do not be bitter toward them. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in all things your master according to the flesh, not with eye service as men-pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. For whatever you do, do it heartily as the Lord not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. For you serve the Lord Christ, but he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, give your bondservants what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Father, we do thank you for your word. Thank you for the fact that you instruct us and teach us what the new man looks like in these basic relationships that we we are part of. We pray that as we examine these passages, that you would help us to not only examine the text and to understand the text, we do want that. We ask that you would help us in understanding the text, but you all, we also ask that you would help us as we examine our own hearts and our own lives, and we reflect upon what the text means, and we put that up against our lives and ask ourselves, in what areas do I need to continue to grow and see your work in me flourish and see that I am maturing and demonstrating this life of the new man. Pray that as you do so, that it would result in your praise, your honor, and your glory, as that is your desire through this. In your name we pray. Amen. He begins and he goes through basic relationships of spouses, the basic relationships of father and child, and then the basic relationship of employer and employee. We're taking a little bit of a uh, hermeneutical jump to get to the employer-employee. Back in historic times, 
it was not uncommon for a wealthy individual to be the lord of his own house, so to speak. And so what that looked like was um, a married man was somewhat the leader, uh, he was the leader of his house, and his wife was under his uh, authority, and the children were under his authority. And then what happens? If you're a wealthy man in ancient times, what did you have under your authority as well? Slaves. And so he's writing and saying, hey, this is what it's going to look like in these basic relationships that you have. Most of you fit into these categories. And so what are we expecting? What are we hoping to see as God works in you? And he says, these are the commands that are given to you. And he begins by addressing husbands and wives. And he begins, first of all, by addressing wives. And as he begins to address wives, he tells them to submit to their own husbands. And that's a great relief to you, right? It should be. Because the instruction is not that you're supposed to submit to everybody's husband. You're only submit, supposed to submit to your own husband. And of course, the submission comes with another restriction that's assumed based on other biblical aspects of theology, and that is that your submission is only required up to the extent to which your husband's instruction and commands and uh, guidance within your relationship is in alignment with the Word of God. So if your husband is telling you, hey, do this, and there is biblical reason to not do that, then you're not under that command. You're not under that instruction. So he tells them, hey, submit to your husbands. Follow your husband's leadership. Follow your husband's guidance. It really boils down to this idea. Submission means that a wife is going to follow, support, and encourage her husband's leadership within their relationship. And so he gives this instruction. And the way I've kind of organized this is I've focused more on the, um, the authoritative side of the text. And am seeking to instruct that side more so than the submissive side. Because the submissive side, um, in this passage, um, as he addresses wives, he simply says, wives, submit to your own husbands. In Ephesians, though, when you look at the same text, what does he say? He says, wives, submit to your husbands in everything. So it's, it's very broad. And I, I think that... What helps people understand and follow through on submitting and obeying and serving well is the leader within the relationship leading well. Now, is the other person responsible for doing what they're supposed to do regardless of how the leader responds? Yes. But he's pretty much just saying, hey, submit. Follow the guidelines. And yet, when he moves on to the husband, he ups the ante, so to speak, right? He doesn't simply give one command to the husband. He actually gives two commands to the husband. Why? Because as the husband follows the commands that he gets, it becomes a lot easier for the wife to submit to him if he's loving his wife and is not being harsh or bitter towards her in his leadership. And so the emphasis, I believe, throughout as you look at like corresponding passages, there's a lot of emphasis on the leader within the relationship. And so he moves on, he tells, he demands that the husbands love their wives, 
and that they do not grow bitter towards them. It's interesting that he doesn't just flip the command, right? He doesn't say, hey, wives, submit to your husbands. And by the way, husbands, in case you didn't pick up on this from the previous verse, husbands, your responsibility is to lead your wife. Right? He doesn't say that. Why? Because that could make a command that the husband is unable to obey. If the wife is unwilling to submit to the husband's leadership, and the husband's command is, lead your wife, and that's the primary responsibility he has before God, and the wife is unwilling to do that, he can't obey God. Right? But, if the wife says, I'm not going to submit, but the husband's command isn't primarily lead, but in the text, the primary command is, Love your wife and don't be bitter towards her. All of a sudden, what's true? The husband can fulfill his command regardless of how the wife responds to his leadership. Why? Because the husband's responsibility to obey God does not change based upon the wife's response to it. The husband's responsibility is to look for ways to meaningfully love his wife and meaningfully check and guard his heart so that he is not embittered towards his wife. And so the husband's responsible for leading the home in various decisions. And as he does that, he's going to come alongside his wife and he's going to seek to understand her heart, understand what she wants, and demonstrate love and care to her as he does that. And as he does this, his, his love becomes a demonstration of his knowledge of his wife. That's why Peter tells us to know our wives and to live with them in understanding. And then the husband should exemplify Christ's love. And you see this in Ephesians. As, as Paul writes to the Ephesian church, he, he emphasizes in far greater detail the commands to the husband to find ways to meaningfully love and care for his wife. And so Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 through 32 says this, Husbands, love your wives. How? Just as Christ also loved the church. How did he do that? He gave himself. He sacrificed himself for her. Why? So that he could make her sanctified and cleansed. Cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. That he might present her to himself a glorious church. Not having spots or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning the church. And so what does it look like for the husband to follow this sacrificial, understanding love that is being described here? You do what you're supposed to do despite your wife's response. You don't love your wife. You don't check your heart for bitterness and harshness towards her because she's submitting to my leadership. Rather, you sacrificially give of yourself 
regardless of their response. Well, that's true for each one of these relationships in, in, in Paul's description of a biblical uh, relationship. So find ways to love and encourage your wife. How? Well, Paul's already talked about how we sacrifice. Find ways to sacrifice for your wife. Sacrifice of your finances, sacrifice of your time, sacrifice your mental effort. Find ways to sacrifice for your wife and demonstrate your love for her. Find ways to lead her spiritually. When you sin against her, when you sin against others that she is aware of, go before her, confess your sin, acknowledge that. By doing so, you're leading her spiritually. You're demonstrating that you love her and that you have a desire for her to grow spiritually. It's a demonstration of your love. You see areas in her life where she is struggling, maybe not necessarily by sin, but just with the pressure that motherhood and work and all the other things come upon her, maybe even sin. What do you do? You pray for your wife and you demonstrate love for her in that way. You encourage her to pursue wise and godly relationships so that she too can flourish and grow. Maybe that means that you're sacrificing your own time, your own delight of using your free time to do something else so that she can purposefully and intentionally pursue nourishment and encouragement from other ladies. And finally and ultimately, you and I as men are married, we need to find our ultimate joy in Christ. That's one of the ways that we love our wife. Because if, if my ultimate joy, my ultimate satisfaction is found in my wife submits to my every whim, when she doesn't do that, how will I respond? It is very unlikely in that situation that I will respond to my wife with a heart of love, compassion, and care. Rather, more likely, my response will be to grow bitter towards my why? Because my ultimate joy isn't found in Christ. My ultimate joy is found in being the ruler of my own household. And the command that Paul gives is not, husbands, you're not leaders. But it's also not, husbands, lead your wives. The ultimate command that you can fulfill, men, as husbands, regardless of whether or not your wife is willing to participate, is to love your wife and not be bitter towards her. Now, the reverse for the wives regardless of whether or not your husband loves you and is not bitter towards you as he is not supposed to be, your responsibility, as long as it's not breaking God's commands, is to submit to your husband's leadership. And Paul says what? Paul says these commands are not dependent upon the other party. He doesn't say if. He just simply gives commands. Wives, Submit. Husbands, love, and do not be bitter toward them. These commands are not built upon each other. It's not a, well, if you scratch my back, I'll scratch your back, and we give and take, and we kind of make do for the next 50 years. It's obey the commands of Scripture, regardless of what you get out of it. Why? Well, he tells us that, right? Ephesians makes it quite clear that by doing so, you're picturing the love that Christ had for the church, and you're honoring and glorifying Christ's great work. Ephesians and Colossians 
make it quite clear that by the wife submitting to the husband and following his guidance and leadership as he lovingly comes alongside her, it is fitting in the Lord. He moves on from here, and he moves into another basic relationship venue. Sorry, both parties submit to the Lord, and he is pleased and glorified to do that. Basics for children and fathers. It's interesting, he does not say in either Ephesians or Colossians, the emphasis is on the fathers. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. The command to the children, once again, it's not dependent upon how the father or the mother responds. Primarily, I believe the idea is the father, but the command is, children, obey your parents. And he goes on and he adds a little phrase, in all things. Once again, I think the idea is, you're supposed to obey in all things. The only thing that would be restricted out of that is if there is a direct violation to God's will. Otherwise, your responsibility is to obey. And God views rebellion as a very serious sin, and the Old Testament discusses and talks about the consequences for failure to obey. And the New Testament, in a number of different occasions, talks about the blessing there is, or the great reward that is available for those who follow in obedience. And so as we look to Ephesians chapter 6, this is what Paul tells the Ephesians, obey your parents in the Lord. Why? Because this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise. That it may be well with you, and that you may live long on the earth. There's actually a promise that you may live longer, you may have a better life based on fulfilling this command. And so it's, it's a serious matter. But he moves on, and I believe that the primary emphasis, once again, is on the father. As he is the leader within the relationship. And so he should be setting intentional, purposeful goals in setting the tone of the relationship and training up the child from an early age to grow and pursue after Christ's likeness. And he tells the fathers to avoid provoking their children. And this could, this could include so many different things. Because what rubs me the wrong way doesn't necessarily rub you the wrong way, right? So, like, my wife hates it when I have a pen, and I just, they're going, click, 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 click. And I love it. Like, I'm, like, just reading my book, and I'm just sitting there with my clickety-click pen, and I'm just click, 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 click. And my, like, I'm, like, don't even pick up on the clickety-click. Like, I'm not doing it to irritate her. That's just, you know, like, I'm fidgeting, and I'm happy I'm in my place. I'm reading my book. And my wife's sitting there going, would you knock it off? Like, just stop. The noise is, like, driving her up the wall, okay? And, you know, some people, the clickety-click doesn't bother them. They're like me. It's just, you know, whatever. It's, you know, kind of like white noise. All right, it's like, that's not white noise. But anyways, <laughs> we have to be careful as fathers to see what is exactly the things that are more likely to provoke our children. 
could be that the lack of harmony within your marriage with your wife is something that provokes your child it could be that your modeling of simple anger is something that provokes your child it could be that your habitual sin of disciplining and anger or how you scold being inconsistent in how you discipline having double standards being legalistic and assuming or asserting to the child that by following this or that command you will earn favor before God and not worrying as much about the heart as you worry about the physical outward appearance what are people at church going to think if they hear that my child dot 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 instead of being concerned about what's internally going on not being willing to approach the child and admit to their own faults and seek their forgiveness comparing them to others not taking time to spend intentional purposeful time with them not encouraging them in the many ways that we can do so failing to keep promises sometimes I find this so hard right sometimes you don't know what all is coming up in your day so like Wednesday night I told my daughter I'll play with you this was Wednesday morning I'm like 6 a.m. or so 630 something like that I'm up reading my Bible daughter comes down knocks on the door daddy I want to play a game I'm like Anastasia I can't play a game right now I'm, I'm reading my Bible I'm praying I'll play with you in the afternoon and then just due to a couple of circumstances that happened and various things that happened in my life it did not happen in the afternoon so we like get home from church at like nine o'clock and I'm like we're playing a game we played a little bit and she packed up that game we played another game for a little bit and she packed that one up and we'll build the promise but you have to be intentional. You have to be purposeful and care about fulfilling promises. And it's hard because it's way easier at 9 o'clock to be like, tomorrow we'll play that game. And I'm not always perfect. There are times where I fail in this area. But when you do fail, how do you respond to that? Do you go to them and say, hey, I made a promise and I failed to fulfill that promise. Will you forgive me? And that's one of the ways that we can be provoking our children mocking our children, ridiculing them, calling them names. There's so many different ways. And, and it's your responsibility as fathers to pursue knowing your children. And children, allow your fathers, your mothers, to know you. You may have already grow a little grown a little discouraged or embittered towards your parents, but seek to allow love to cover things allow them to develop that relationship and grow to know you so that they know the things that are frustrating to you. Be willing to confront them. And fathers, be willing to accept and receive that confrontation. The idea is this, that a father's poor choices in these areas and other areas may become a discouragement so much so that their, their child refuses to follow after their guidance. That's a scary thought. Fathers, we have to be careful with how we respond to how we approach our children. It's interesting that Ephesians doesn't simply leave the command at that for fathers, right? Ephesians goes on, and as he describes for fathers their responsibility to the children, he says a father must instead nurture and intentionally disciple his child. Remember if I shared it this week on Facebook or not, but I saw a really, really good quote that just made me kind of stop and think. 
Disciples are not made in mass, they're made individually. Right? Most of us, as we look back at our Christian life, we can look at the different relationships we had with people, the one-on-one -on -one conversations that we had with people that challenged us, encouraged us, rebuked us, and as a result of those one-on-one -on -one conversations, we saw far greater growth than we ever did from listening to a 45-minute sermon. I'm aware of that, okay? It's okay. But you have to be intentional. You have to be purposeful. And so Ephesians 6, 4 says, And you fathers do not provoke your children, but do what? But bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. As both the father and the child submit to the Lord's commands, God is glorified. Once again, you are responsible for your actions, not the other parties. Children, it is your responsibility, regardless of whether or not your father provokes you or fails to take time to intentionally nurture and disciple you in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, to obey. Now, if there's some kind of sin that's in contrast to the word of God that needs to be addressed, you address that. You don't necessarily follow in disobedience to God's commands. That's not what we're saying. There may be a time to, to tell somebody else and get help. But as long as there is um, a submission to God's word and the commands are not outside of the commands of God or in defiance to God's commands, it's your responsibility to obey. And fathers, whether or not your child lives in obedience as they should. It's your responsibility to not provoke them. To know them, to love them, just as you pursue loving and knowing your wife, so you do not become embittered to your wife, the same thing that you're responsible for doing with your children. And then taking the next step that Ephesians points us to, not simply not provoking them, but finding ways to come alongside them and nurture them and bring them into a right relationship with Christ finally moves on to the last relationship, basics for employees and employers. Slaves, once again, are to obey their physical masters. They too are to serve their masters as if they are serving the Lord. In verse 27, obey in all things. Once again, you have that. Each one of the uh, submissive parts within these relationships has in all things or in everything. Not necessarily in Colossians, but if you add Ephesians to the information that we're working with, wives submit in everything, children obey in all things, bondservants obey in all things. Why? Why do they do this? Not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And it does seem to me that Paul is, you know, beginning to bring in information that helps them to see that this isn't necessarily how things are always going to be. He is quick to point out, uh, these are your masters according to the flesh. He could have just said, these are your masters, and left it at that. But he, he points to, there's a higher master, there's somebody else that's in a higher authority. He tells them to do it as if they're doing it for the Lord and not for men. He tells them to anticipate the reward that the Lord provides. 
You know, it's, it's so easy for us in our day and age as we work and as we labor to do so for the various rewards that we could physically get. And it's not just money, right? There's all sorts of things that people work hard for. Sometimes people go to work and they work hard because they want income, they want a bonus. Sometimes, though, it's prestige. Sometimes it's because they want a promotion so that they can be boss. Not because they really care about the money, but because they want to be the boss. They want to be able to tell others what to do. And, and it's not bad to be the boss. It could be a very good thing for you to be the boss. But that's not why you do what you do. He says you do what you do because you're doing it for the Lord. Knowing that the Lord is the one who will provide you with the reward. He goes on and he addresses the masters. And he tells the masters that they are to treat their slaves in a just and fair manner. I think as we think about our modern day relationship between employers and employees, this would include things that the master or the employer is supposed to do at your workplace, like providing reasonable expectations and clearly communicating these are the things that we expect from an employee. This is how you are to relate to the customer. This is how you are to relate to me as the employer or as your boss in this work environment. We address wrongs. It's easy for us to become embittered, right? And an employee does something that's wrong or doesn't follow an instruction, and it's easy for us to allow that to go unaddressed because conflict is hard. And yet what does it look like to be just and fair with somebody who's done something wrong in the work environment? The proper response is to go before them and to confront them about the wrong. And then once again reiterate very clearly, these are the expectations. These are reasonable expectations and we want to see you follow through on these. And if these don't happen, these are the consequences you can expect. When you fail to address the, the, the wrong initially and you allow it to go on, your chances of being embittered as a boss are higher and chances of them changing their ways, very low. And so he encourages uh, us to be just and fair. I think another thing is that we provide appropriate benefits. And I'm not going to tell you what that is. It's above my pay grade. But provide appropriate benefits. Seek to care for your employees in a way that is appropriate to what they do in other areas, if they were doing a similar job for another person, what would they get paid? What would the benefits of that look like? Vacation, sick time, retirement, et cetera, et cetera. Once again, though, the motivation for both parties is to please and glorify the Lord. The motivation for an employee or the bond servants obeying their master is not because the master is just and fair and realizes he has a far greater master in the Lord. The motivation is, God tells me, this is how I relate with my master. And so I obey. I follow him. Motivation for the master to be just and fair is not because the servant does what he's supposed to do. Just and fair does not mean that you overlook wrong and just go, oh, it doesn't matter. But you respond in a just and fair manner addressing the issues as they arise. 
neither party is dependent upon the other for their obedience. And so as we think about application of Ephesians chapter, or Colossians chapter 3, verse 18 through chapter 4, verse 1, what does it look like for you and I to live out these basic relationships to portray the new man this coming week? What are you and I supposed to do differently? Right? Because James tells us that if we look into a glass and we see ourselves and we just continue on our life as if nothing happened, that's useless religion, right? So we've, we've been exposed to the Word of God. We've seen the Word of God. It's given each one of us at least one command that we can say, this is a command that is to me. Wives, submit. Husbands, love. Don't be bitter. Children, obey. Fathers, do not provoke. Rather, encourage. Bring up your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Bond servants, obey. Serve the Lord, not men. Masters, be just and fair. So what does this look like? How do I take practical steps to grow and to apply these principles? Ultimately, I believe that the primary thing that he wants them to do, if you remember from my introduction and my theme, in all our relationships, we live what? To please the Lord. And so your responsibility, my responsibility, as I look at these commands is that I'm supposed to fulfill my purpose. What is that? I'm supposed to please and glorify the Lord. That means I look at this text and I say, which one of these commands do I fall under? I am a husband. So I must take intentional, purposeful steps this week to find ways to love my wife and not be bitter toward her. I am a father. So I must take intentional, purposeful steps to not provoke my children, but to find ways to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. I work for you, so I must find ways to do so as one who is serving not you primarily, but who? The Lord. And so I must look at, you know, all sorts of commands about what does a pastor do? And i got to try and find ways to practically do those things because those are the things that I've been entrusted with. And all that is in, a, in an effort, in a, in a desire, passion that's driving us is I want to please and glorify God as I obey these commands. What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to enjoy God and to glorify God forever. These commands are given to us so that you and I will know how to enjoy and glorify God. So fulfill your purpose. Secondly, we live as new men. And he gives us instructions about what this is going to look like. As we think through the commands that we have, what are the things that we're supposed to put on? As holy and beloved elect of God, we put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another... Even as Christ forgave you, so you must also do. Let the peace of God dwell in you richly. Admonish one another. Encourage one another. As you look at what the new man does, how do you work out those 
put-ons in your commands. Your commands are different than mine. But each of us has at least one of these that we somehow fall under. So how are we going to live in response to them? Then let me encourage you this week to make intentional steps in maturity this week. Try to take intentional steps in maturity this week. And perhaps that means that you're going to sit down with the scriptures open in front of you and cry out to God and ask God, which one of these commands do you want me to be working on? Perhaps it's going to mean that you go to your spouse, you go to your children, and you ask them, hey, where do you see that I need to grow? Perhaps you go to a trusted friend who knows you well and ask them, hey, as we've engaged and as we've lived in relationship with one another, what are areas that you see in my life that I need to grow and mature in? As God reveals areas of sin to you, you confess them and then you pursue to live in truth. Each one of us has at least one of these commands that is ours. And so how are you going to go about fulfilling your commands? I, I would encourage you now as, as we get ready to close in song, do you think through specifically at least one step you're going to take this week to begin pursuing more faithful living out of the new man. These, Paul says, are the basics. And you and I need to make sure that we're living the basics as we should, so that the new man is evident to the watching world. So that our testimony is vibrant and alive, and so that we have opportunities to share with others the hope of Christ. What has transformed us, and what is transforming us. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for truthfulness. We thank you for the fact that it uh, confronts us, but it not only confronts us, but it provides us with a path forward so that we can see where we are wrong, but that it also provides us a path forward and says, this is where you're wrong, but this is what you need to do to correct it. We thank you for your faithfulness to us in providing us the path, for guiding us and giving us clarity as we think about our various responsibilities and the many relationships that we enjoy, but that we also have responsibility with them. We pray that you would help us to be intentional and purposeful this week, and as we do so, that you would be pleased and that you would be glorified through our lives. In your name we pray.